morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone, depending on where you are in, this, in your part of the world. My name is Wolfgang Jammern. I'm the executive director of the International Civil Society Center. For those who are visually impaired, I'm wearing a reddish shirt with a dark blue cardigan. And very happy to welcome the audience to day four of the Global Perspectives Conference, which started last week with a couple of physical meetings all around the world and has three virtual days this week, which are being facilitated through our team here in Berlin. We have a day that deals with digital power shift. And it's quite exciting to start this day with, uh, with a discussion on one of the maybe most exciting and also most scaring topic in the fourth digital industrial revolution, which is machine learning and artificial intelligence. I'm quite happy to have this debate, not just at the start of this day, but also after the uh, quite inspiring and quite challenging keynote of uh, Nanjira Sambuli that many of you heard, who spoke was to a certain extent about the opportunities that digitalization in general, but also in particular machine learning brings to many of the problems of today's world, but also challenged us around both the hype and the need to test any kind of technological solutions with the communities that we're trying to serve and involve them from the outside of any kind of technological design. There were a couple of interesting sound bites that we heard earlier, and I'm repeating those because our panelists were not privy to the conversation, but she talked about opinions embedded in codes and challenging us to not reduce complexities of human beings into ones and zeros, something that obviously determines the digital world. So there is exciting stuff coming ahead of us in the hour that we have together. Now let me move very quickly to the panel that will help us unpack and uncover both opportunities and some of the challenges and threats. We have Benjamin Rossman from South Africa, from the University of Witzewatersrand. We have Anne Mollen of Algorithm Watch, and we have Franziska Heine of Wikimedia. Our two ladies are here in Berlin, which is, as we all know, one of those exciting digital hubs that have sprung up all over the world. So it's quite exciting to have various perspectives from various parts of the world. I would like the three panelists to speak for about five minutes each on the key challenges that we see as civil society around those two topics. And I would like to start with Benjamin. Benji, you have an impressive academic career, but not only that, you've also, we've seen this in the speaker's description, founded Deep Learning in Daba, which is aimed at strengthening African machine learning. You're deep in the technology, you're an expert. But you also note that there's a growing disconnect from the societal values that are so important for us. In your opinion, how can we bridge this, this gap, this disconnect of artificial intelligence and this very dynamic piece of digitalization and the societies that we all live in? Over to you, Benji. Thanks so much. And it's great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. And I think this is a very exciting and important discussion to be having. And so again, I'm, I'm honored to be here. As you note, I'm someone who works on the technical side. So I sit in academia, I'm a machine learning researcher. And so I focus on developing new algorithms and models and trying to advance the state of scientific knowledge in the field. To give you an idea of how the field's progressing, there's a ridiculous amount of work being done at this point. There's something like 100 to 150 publications coming out every single day in machine learning, which is quite a lot. 
it's a very democratized field. And so what we see is from the time when research lab is working on something to the time other people can embrace those technologies, that's really short. When people release their papers, they often release code with it as well, which means that within a few days of a big, important breakthrough, people all over the world can have access to this to work on, on their own computers. So what this means is there's a big, vibrant community around the world really pushing the state of the field. What we typically see is a gap between theory and applications. So we're always trying to tackle new scientific problems, but that doesn't mean that it's got some sort of application to the real world. And in fact, more and more, it's important that questions of ethics come into this as well. As you noted, questions around the values of society, which in many cases, well, certainly aren't known to the researchers, but in many cases, we haven't even had those discussions as a society of how we treat our values, how we prioritize our values and so on. And so I think fundamentally there's an important need to create diverse teams around AI and machine learning that really bridge between theory and applications and the societal implications of the work. Another aspect of this is that, particularly in the work that in my sub area in machine learning is we're moving from just making predictions, which is famously what machine learning is about, to decision-making. So when you think about predictions, you've got all the, the problems that people are becoming increasingly aware of, questions around biases in data, how these models affect different people. But as we're moving to more autonomous decision-making, this problem can become really compounded. This is famously, these problems show up in things like playing Go and other games, driving autonomous cars and so on, but we're slowly moving into real world applications. So for example, in medicine, you could think of a predictive problem as looking at an X-ray, say a chest X-ray and saying, someone's got TB from this. But moving to this more decision-making type problem means we'd be looking at longer term questions around how might you say treat a patient over some period of time, changing their medicines, getting more tests, getting other opinions, changing diets and so on. And so I think particularly here as we're influencing decisions more and more, it's important to think about these implications. The field's becoming more aware of this. There's more work moving into applications areas. There's more work around what people call AI for good. More and more in machine learning programs at universities, we look at teaching ethics and so on, but these gaps are still there. And so I think it's important for people like CSOs to understand the technology. There's a number of applications that people might not even be aware the tools exist to solve these problems, but also we need help as a technical community in shaping the responsible development of these tools. There's so many examples of this. I mean, two things that, that come to mind. One is if you look at the scientific breakthroughs that are happening in areas such as computer vision, which is around working with images. Now, in kind of your pure theoretical research, you might be trying to pick up cats in videos or something silly like that. But where we see this moving into the real world, I've seen things, for example, through this deep learning and DARPA movement we started, which I can talk about later, which is tying in researchers from across Africa and students as well. We've seen kinds of solutions using these technologies like building apps on phones to be able to take photos of crops such as cassava plants and diagnose diseases based on using a simple application of these tools or looking at 
where teachers have been having issues in, you know, wanting to monitor the, the kind of growth of their students in the classroom and building tools that, you know, a teacher can take a photo with their phone of an answer paper for a test and it marks it for them, which reduces the overhead. So there's a number of these applications that people might not even be aware that there's off-the-shelf technological solutions to them. Perhaps the researchers have never thought about that. On the other hand, there's other kinds of nice connections that you could form between academia and organizations. One example grew out of our Indaba movement, which is called the Masakane Project, where that's more interested in natural language technologies. And there's a, a big issue, a technical issue around what we call under-resourced languages, where you don't have these large corpuses of text in two different languages to build translation models. But some of the members of the community went and kind of adapted some of these techniques so that practitioners across Africa, which has something like 2,000 languages in it, can easily implement these models and train models and look at how well they can translate between these languages. So there's a lot of these kinds of initiatives, but it really involves this bridge and closing this gap between academia and society. And so my, my kind of main point here that I think is important is that CSOs start engaging with researchers. And while there's a lot of excitement in research around big corporate labs, really your universities are, I think, where, where important connections need to be made. There's so many people working in the field. And I think having these tie-ins from academia to different parts of society is just critically important. Thanks, Benji. And if you allow me one question, um, obviously there's there's lots of, of good examples of how AI can, can help with some of the practical cases that you've just described. But if I understand you well, the, the critical point is when algorithms move to decision-making, so determine decision-making, whether it's in very practical matters or whether it's at the more policy level. And have you seen, and can you give us an indication where civil society can help with this kind of intersection, not just that we have the moral obligation and the responsibility, but where do we have the opportunity? So I think this is interesting because this is still a very new idea in the field. Well, it's been around for a couple of decades, but only really starting to mature now. The bulk of machine learning is still about making predictions and whether that's predicting what will happen with the weather or a currency tomorrow, predicting stability of some environment, determining what's going on in an image. Like those are all prediction problems. These decision-making problems, there's some technical challenges around actually doing the kinds of simulations that are important to guide these. But we're seeing a lot of push towards things like education and healthcare, but people are talking about there's fundamentally no reason why the same techniques can't be used to, say, make efficient decisions in a company or even a country. There are still the challenges there, but I think what's important here is the way it's designed or these kinds of uh, models work is they require that you build some notion of what is desirable or undesirable. And the challenges here are that we're not always sure what the right things to do are. As a simple example, if you're trying to get a car to take you from A to B, you might say the thing that's desirable is arriving at location B. But actually, that's not the whole picture, right? If you just gave that instruction to these systems, they would do something disastrous. What you actually want is go from A to B, do it fuel efficiently, do it in a reasonable amount of time, obey the rules of the road, try not to kill anybody along the way, try not to smash into buildings, right? There's actually a whole lot of requirements that we don't think about when we describe tasks we're trying to solve. And this is where it's important to actually be quite explicit in certain problems we want to solve. What are the things to think about so that we don't have undesirable side effects of our solutions? 
Thanks a lot. We're moving to Anne. Anne Mollen is the Policy and Advocacy Manager of Algorithm Watch. Just the title of your organization gives some hope and confidence. Just knowing that there's someone watching algorithms, uh, I think it's it's a wonderful organization's name. But uh, you know, more, more seriously, you do work also, or maybe more so, at the intersection of digital media technologies, particularly on machine learning and societies and democracy. So give us your take, please, on both where the challenge is and how can civil society actors, whether it's organization or the unorganized parts of civil society, contribute to this, to a better interconnect of such critical dimensions. Yes, thank you very much for the introduction and the invitation. What I want to talk about feeds nicely into what Benji just said, because we are focusing as an organization on automated decision-making. This is what we do. These automated decision-making systems are often referred to as artificial intelligence, but we prefer the name ADM systems. And we can see that they're implemented in many, many areas of life, for instance, in the workplace, in the public sectors where you have automated procedures on deciding who will beget social welfare, for example. We have it in healthcare, but we also have it in the ways we're being presented with news content on social media platform. This is probably something that most of you can relate to. What we're concerned with is that these automated decisions are not always in the interest of the common good. They, these decisions can be false, they can discriminate, they are opaque, and they do not so far offer themselves for control or oversight. So as an organization, we are raising awareness on these automated decision-making systems. We analyze them because this is the most important step, and we try to investigate how they impact, what kind of impact they have on a societal scale. They become relevant in more and more areas of life, and this is probably also why we're here today, and we are a watchdog organization, so we are explicitly looking at the challenges that they can pose for us as societies and democracies, really. So considering the overarching question of how to engage in that debate as a CSO, how far to go into this kind of technical discussions, I would like to put my focus on three main points here. And the first one might be a bit surprising, but the first message from my side would be do not focus too much on the technology. It's quite interesting because I think I'm sitting here with two computer scientists by origin and I'm a social scientist. So it is not always necessary to go too deep into the technology because technologies are always used in social contexts. It is important to look at how they are put to use, how algorithms are put to use. For instance, if you look at automated decision-making when it comes to social welfare distribution in the public sector, to make such systems fair and without fault, it is not sufficient to control the technology or regulate the technology, but we need to consider how people are using the technology in the public sector, what they know about the technology, how the technology is controlled, how automated decisions are really put into practice and how they're impacting on people. So as CSOs, I'm pretty confident that you have a lot of expertise about these social processes and you know how to investigate these social processes in your specific field. And this kind of, you can take that on into this discussion when AI or machine learning is entering the scene. My advice would be to keep concentrating on these social processes, even when new technologies come in and use your ability to scrutinize these processes and then use that as entry points for regulation campaigns and advocacies. But you need to gain knowledge about how AI impacts these social processes. 
And the second message from my side would be, well, you still need to gain some basic knowledge of the technology. And more importantly, you need to contribute to demystifying the technology and cooperate with maybe expert CSOs or researchers, like Benji said. I'm not a computer scientist, and most people at Algorithm Watch are not computer scientists. We have a couple of them. But all of us have a basic understanding about artificial intelligence. We need to understand why automated decision-making might lead to discrimination, how we probably never have an unbiased data set to train algorithms. And if you as a CSO do not have that knowledge, get in touch with people and organizations, because we're always looking for these kind of corporations. You know about the social processes in your respective field, and we can't. So we can provide some tech expertise, and we are always happy to see where are the problems because it is spreading so widely that we cannot possibly know all the impacts. So get in touch and build networks because we need to contribute towards demystifying the technology. These discourses about this almost magical AI, it's often very much influenced by big tech discourses. So these companies, they are always contributing to producing this narrative of almost magical AI, but it's the technology. It works with certain procedures, certain ways of operating, and we need to understand these and really demystify it. And my third message would be, do not look so much at trends. Don't worry too much about trends. It's a fast evolving field, but you know, the smaller trends are not that important, but look for the real game changes. Because when the social processes are changing so fundamentally that your usual ways of making an impact do no longer work, then you need to start worrying, right? Social contexts usually remain quite stable, but AI can bring fundamental changes. So if we look at the area of labor and the workplace in Germany, we have usually very strong unions and workers' councils and corporations. But right now, AI is really starting to impact how work is being organized. And we see that the traditional ways of co-determination practice of the right to say for workers' councils, it's becoming more and more difficult. And if these processes start changing, we need to find new ways of, you know, making an impact. And so this is a huge challenge that needs addressing, both on the technological and the you know, social context grounds. It kind of relates to what Benji said, that we also need more interdisciplinary work, that we need to work together also across research and CSOs. But I also think that we achieved quite a bit already. So I'm excited to discuss this further with you. Thanks, Anne. And also one question for me. Let me challenge you a bit and maybe everyone on the panel. You know, we spent six days now in this conference talking about power about power shifts, about power imbalances. I haven't heard that word from either of you nor from uh, Nanjira. So, I mean, you talk about bias and potential discrimination and you mentioned the role of big tech and the like, but you as a political watchdog organization, how much do you think that artificial intelligence and machine learning has become a part and maybe a, a reinforcer of existing power imbalances? It's a huge problem. We see a lot of, you know, market concentration. We see very few organizations with very large data sets and not providing access to other actors who might want to enter the scene and who could be competitors. So there's a huge power imbalance just when it comes to the technology. But there's also a power imbalance because of the opaqueness, because we don't get the information that we need. And this is something that we see with workers' councils. They don't have the education. They don't have the training. They need to get that knowledge. But then they also need to get insight. And then we often have the producers of such systems saying, well, it's trade secrets. We can't open our systems. So this is something I would like to discuss with Benji because he was talking about the openness. But when we come 
come to industry actors, it's a totally different story. And this is what was often applied in the field. So we need regulatory approaches to make sure that we can get some sort of transparency and oversight and control into these systems because there's a huge power imbalance. Thank you very much. And mind you, we have the time, we'll have a second round where we speak to each other. So I think some of the statements that, that the three of you bring, I think, require and cause a little bit of discourse. That's clearly something to be, uh, to be put on the marker. Let's turn to Franziska. Franziska Heine is the Deputy Executive Director of the Wikimedia in Deutschland, Wikimedia Germany, which is, of course, the largest part of a network that is behind Wikipedia. But uh, you're also mainly responsible for the Wikidata project work. And of course, you do have a deep understanding of the issues around machine learning and artificial intelligence. But you also can speak definitely from the perspective of a practitioner, because Wikimedia is a foundation, it is an NGO, and you have a political ambition of transparency and openness. So would you let us know uh, from your perspective how civil society can do a better job here? Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for this introduction. Also for me, it's a pleasure to be in this round of people talking about this thing, because you are right, this is very core to what we do. And we don't just do this as an organization, we do this together with our communities, because that's what we do, right? We help and support our communities in writing the knowledge of this world, basically. We also work with cultural and science institutions to free their part of the data they own, and we try to advocate mainly in Germany and on an EU level to, yeah, also on a legislative level, open up as much information as possible by default. When it comes to my part of the organization, we create software. And we create software to capture the knowledge of this world, as mentioned before. And the goal and the idea behind this is that everyone is able to describe the concepts in their world. Because I think you mentioned that before, that matters, right? Like the context where you are matters for what the world is and how you would describe it. And the important thing about Wikidata is that it produces data that can be used not just by people looking at it, but also by software, by applications, by algorithms, they access this information. And when they do, in turn, we get to know things about our world that have previously been hidden. I have to make this as tangible as possible with an example. Let's imagine you want to know which Spanish poets of the 18th century had fathers that were farmers. You could go to any library and ask for, give me a list of these poets, I want to read their books, Wikidata can. We can tell you that, but only if we have the data. And that brings me to my main point for this context of machine learning and artificial intelligence. They require large data sets to work. They need that data to be trained on, to be adjusted, to be calibrated, and in the end to produce results. And in other words, these results are a reflection of the data they have learned from. And that data, again, is coming from a specific context, but that context might not reflect your world, your context. And that in turn begs the question, how relevant is the result of that algorithm, of that machine to you? Benjamin and, and Anne, uh, I'm asking for your input here while I read at least the two comments that we have. Please encouraging the audience also to put more questions into the chat. 
So Ahmed Dahir says technology is advancing at a rapid pace. We need to catch up with this at the same time avoiding its negative effects. So how can we combine speed and accuracy? Great question. And Dini from Indonesia agrees with Anne. As technology advances, we need to focus more on the human and help to create an environment that puts human in the center. While you reflect on the questions, it looks like we have Francisca back. Francisca, you were just disappeared for two minutes. So we, we lost you about two minutes ago. So uh, can we recall, actually? Can you tell me at which point you lost me? Because then I jumped back there. Good question. You didn't speak about any particular project yet. You spoke about the context and how the context matters for the data that we both produce and interpret. Maybe that's a kind of segue into your flow of the presentation. The main point I want to make, because mm -hmm. that context matters, it's so important that we all together create the data that's been used by those machines. On the other hand, produce then results for us, because those results are only relevant if they are based on our data. Projects like Wikidata allow exactly that. They allow you to describe your world, and then they allow other people to take that data and build something that works for you. If you take, for example, the OpenAI project, whose machine learning systems use data from Wikidata to perform entity disambiguation, which means, I know it's a technical term, but what it means is it, it helps a computer to understand the difference between seemingly the same thing. If you have Jaguar, for example, a Jaguar can be an animal or a car. Now, the computer needs to be able to make that distinction to give you the right information at the right point in time. But now imagine Jaguar in your world is also a third thing, but that system doesn't know about it. So it cannot include this into the results they give you back. So to, to end this, and I mean, we can, we come back to questions, maybe if you want to go into certain points deeper, what's important to me is that we create the data together that reflects our specific context. Let's make sure that as many of us as possible understand that technology behind ML, AI and algorithms, but really let's do this together because I think this is really where the power lies. If people like Benji and Anne and I and you and your organizations come together and do this together, then we have a chance of really making this work in a nice way. Well, thanks for encouraging collaboration. And I think we're all game here, but maybe also one question to you, Francisca. I mean, with, with all the admiration and respect that we have vis-a-vis -vis Wikimedia Foundation, Wikipedia and Wikidata project, is that good enough in terms of ambition? Because we have spoken, yes, you speak about data being context-specific, data being part of knowledge, data having to be you know, neutral, objective, and the like. But of course, this is only one part of the story, as we've also heard in the previous contributions. You know, How does Wikimedia deal with the fact that data and knowledge is part of a power discourse? And whether you like it or not, you know, you'll be drawn into it, even if you stay as objective and inclusive and context-specific as possible. How do you deal with that dilemma? You are absolutely right. I mean, this is a lot about capacity building, about transfer of resources to other places than Berlin. I mean, me speaking here from Berlin is a nice example, right? But I'm just coming from the WikidataCon, our big conference every two years. And it's just amazing to see what's happening out there in the world. Benjamin, you mentioned African language communities. We have a lot of small groups starting to do things with Wikidata and the Lexemes part of it. And it's our responsibility, and it's my answer to your question, it's our responsibility to make them do the work they want to do. 
and B, this by making sure they have access to the technology they need, giving them resources in terms of money at the end of the day, making sure they are in the decision-making circles where they can influence what's happening. And we are taking all those steps. Like, this is nothing, we, we are just starting. We always try to do this. But of course, it has to be reinforced all the time. And I have to say, this is for our benefit because looking at what's happening there, the ideas that come out of that and the, the tools in the end that then benefit again everyone, they're so amazing. And this is something we could not build here in Berlin because we are in Berlin. So yeah, in the end, it's moving moving resources and, and power to places where they currently not are. Super. I'd like us to do a very quick round now, the three of you, and I'll start with the same order with Benji, Anne, and Francisca, and maybe only two or three minutes, but reflect a little bit on what you've heard from your co-panelists whether it's a challenge, whether it's a question, whether it's something that makes you curious or whether that's something that you disagree uh, uh, with. Unless we're all on the same page, expecting a little bit of discourse. Uh, Benji, what have you heard and where do you have experienced a surprise or an aha moment? I must say, I think it's quite hard to disagree with my colleagues here. There were many very wise things said. I think a, a couple points that I want to pick up on, one around demystifying the technologies. I think that's really important. That's also very difficult. For a lot of us in the tech world, we don't even completely understand how the current wave of technologies work. I mean, that, that, that always sounds far more terrifying than it actually is. It, it fundamentally comes down to, if I give an analogy to a way a lot of the current machine learning models work is they very, very loosely based on a kind of 1940s abstraction of the human brain. And if you think about what's important in the human brain is the connections between all your neurons. That's where things get learned. And if you've got billions and billions of these things that are, are learn each learning a tiny little piece of how to solve a problem, it's very hard to interrogate that and figure out what your machine learning system has actually learned. And so what I find comforting is there's now a big move towards building more interpretable and explainable systems. There's a lot of research going into this because people are aware of this being a problem. So it's quite easy to get a high level view of what's happening. And I, I do think this is critically important that everybody has at least some basic idea of how these technologies work to be more effective at getting involved in these discussions. But the actual nitty gritty details is a, is a big research problem. And I think actually throwing more funding at this is a useful thing to do at this point. I also really like the, the point Francisca made about capacity building. I think that's absolutely critical. Um, if I can take just a brief moment to mention like our initiative that we've been working on in Africa, the Deep Learning in Daba, which is now a, an annual, well, COVID permitting, an annual summer school we've been holding for the last few years to strengthen machine learning in Africa. And when we started this in 2017, we thought Maybe we'd find 50 people who would care for a week-long intensive summer school on machine learning in Africa. And our last iteration, which was just before the pandemic, was in Kenya, and we had 700 people attending. And we have a huge amount of funding, which is very positive from all the big tech companies who recognize this kind of inclusion of Africans into the conversation as important. And we've now also held satellite events in something like 30 African countries. So there's probably close to 10,000 new people that have come into the international AI community through this kind of initiative. And there's similar things that have started up elsewhere in the world. And I think supporting these kind of initiatives is really important because 
that also gives you access to more experts in different countries with different contexts, as Francisco was mentioning, more people that can help demystify the technology and so on. Super. And for our audience out there, if you could provide us a link with the Indaba initiative, I'm sure people might be interested to sign up more potential participants. Thanks, Benji. Anne, what have you heard from your fellow panelists that excites you or irritates you? Besides the democratization or the democracy of AI that Benji is talking about. Yeah, I mean, it's two stories there. I totally agree that civil society organizations should be cooperating with researchers more because we have the openness there and we have, and we do it, we cooperate with researchers a lot. But then when we get to the real world application right now, it is looking like it's mostly corporate actors who are implementing AI systems and automated decision-making systems. So we still need a solution here and we need a regulatory approach here. It can't be, you know, the individual being responsible or individual organizations being responsible to challenging this huge power imbalance that, that I've tried to address very, very briefly. And I absolutely also agree with the challenge of demystifying technology. And But I would like to add that it's an open question how deep you have to go into that understanding. Do I have to understand basic principles or do I have to be able to read the code? It depends. I mean, not everyone needs to, to learn code in a way that will make it for him or her possible to exercise oversights for themselves. So there's a limit to how far we need to demystify the technology, but we need to understand that it's technology and not magic. So I think this is this is the general idea. And coming back to what Francisca has said, there are some interesting points here to, and your question also to Francisca saying that, you know, what what do even smaller CSO initiatives, what can they bring to the table, to the agenda? And I think it's very, very important that we have a lot of very small initiatives on the ground because we need to be creating alternative narratives, alternative discourses. I've tried to mention that before, this whole magic AI discourse is also something that is pushed a lot by big tech companies. And we need to create alternative best practice examples of what technology can also be put to use for. And actually, Wikimedia and Algorithm Watch, we are part of a coalition in Germany called the F5 coalition, where we are getting different CSOs together to make an impact on the political scene, because we do not want to leave the digital policy discussions to economic actors and the economic sector and the security interests. We need a civil society voice in there. And this is why we also need these also partly very small initiatives to show what AI and machine learning can also be put to use for. My fantasy is good enough to imagine that an initiative that you're just describing might have an impact on a regulatory environment in Germany. But as we all know, digital is not controlled by national borders. So how, and that's a genuine question, you know, how can we make a better impact in terms of the regulatory or governance frameworks that are needed around technologies like AI and others? And that's really a question for all three of you. If you have an idea, if you have great examples, yes, there's a couple of global panels or, or events and conferences, but, but how do we make sure that beyond national borders, we fulfill the responsibility that we all carry? While you reflect on this, can I ask Francisca to also let us know what you've heard from your co-panelists? Well, lots of interesting insights, actually, and that both fields, both of your fields are rather 
broad and it's hard to focus because you can like, focus always means you have to zoom in on a certain point and I pondered if I should ask the question but I'm super curious and maybe you do have an answer to that because what I see in in my field is that the really 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 exciting stuff is happening on the margins at the places where things come together, where, where there is the border and the intersection to other things. And I was wondering if you could, for your places, say, is there one thing you, you would want to pick out from that margin you currently see where you're like, well, this is, especially in the realm of civil society organization, actually something where I'm really excited about. If I'm not opening up a too broad of another bucket, I'm sorry for and that. And that's a question to your two co-panelists. Yes. Anyone wants wants to answer or volunteer to try to answer? And I'm happy to go otherwise. You can both speak. So why don't you start, Andy? <laughs> okay. Or well, at least on my side, again, sitting in the more academic view, what I'm excited about is this movement towards building technologies that are more transparent to some extent. So for example, something that we're working on in my group would be building these kinds of decision-making tools, but in a way that makes it more human-friendly to specify the actual goals and objectives of the system so that it's not left to what's typically done is you've got to set some positive numbers on things, desirable outcomes and negative numbers on undesirable outcomes and figure out exactly which are the right ones and how much to weight each one in terms of importance. But rather, as I say, building these kinds of tools that make it, you know, move that up from being computer speak to human-friendly conversations. That's the kind of work that I think is really exciting in the space because it then means that there's all these toolboxes that then people can use, which they can already use, but they can do in a way that they can be more confident that it's doing what they actually want to be done and perhaps hopefully more robust against undesirable side effects. Yeah, yeah so my problem is that we are, as a watchdog organization are mostly concerned with what is going wrong. So it's always hard to find the good examples, no, but we're looking at them. And one that comes to my mind is we're looking at ADM systems in the public sector. And what we want is that we have public registers of all ADM systems in use. So we have one first step of transparency that people know when they are being objected to an ADM system, which they often do not know. And so we have the examples of Helsinki at the moment in Amsterdam, which have started such public registers where citizens can look up how far ADM systems are used and when they are probably being objected to an ADM system. When we hear voices saying that such public registers are not possible, we have two good examples where we can show it is actually happening and the discourse is probably going that way. Thank you both. I'm going to quickly ask the panelists for this final round and picking the questions. We'll speak about newly created disparities. Uh, we have to be a bit... Uh, a shorter nod. Short. Yes, I think the main one really is between people who are tech savvy and who are not, who have access to the technology on one hand side and on the other and who have the knowledge. Thank you very much. And, and that, of course, also poses the question, how democratic is a system where very few actually have control and access to? And 
I'm going to focus quickly on regulation. I can't remember the exact formulation, but when it comes to a global scale, I think, well, there's limit to what we can achieve on the national level, but we have some ideas on the European level at the moment. And there is a hope that we will have some sort of Brussels effect if we have an AI regulation in place on a European level, similar to what we are seeing with the GDPR. And what should be regulated is also a good question because there's a difference between research, the industry, and you know what private people are doing. So the regulation at EU level foresees at the moment regulation when AI systems are entering the market. I would make a difference because there should also be more freedom to you know do research and it should not be over-regulated. So we need to make distinctions there as well. Thank you very much, Anne. And over to you, Benji, uh, last word, and, and please feel free either to compliment your colleagues or, or take the third topic. Okay, yeah, just maybe briefly on the third one, which I think was about the existing biases and so on. I mean, this is clearly a really important question, and I think one of the best ways to deal with it is to broaden the diversity of people actually in the community. If a whole lot of the technical solutions are just being built in Silicon Valley and the data sets of people that you're training your models on are kind of white male Ivy League graduates, then obviously there's going to be a bias. I mean, your systems, we often talk about not just wanting to parachute in solutions from other parts of the world, at least into the African context. And so I think it's, it's important that there's a good global representation in the community. So thank you very much, all three of you. I think this was a fascinating exchange. It wasn't a debate in the way that we were disagreeing over many things, but I found it fascinating, the various the different perspectives that you, that you bring to this important and cutting edge topic that is so important for our current way of living as a citizen, not to speak of organized civil society. So I want to thank everyone. What encourages me is that there is a fairly large and highly capacitive crowd of civil society actors that bring a strong, not just opinion, but also capacity to the, to the table. And it's not just big tech who is designing this, this kind of field of the fourth industrial revolution. All of you are calling for closer collaboration. And I think the debate today has, has shown how easy it would be to overcome some of our institutional hurdles. We know that we're already working with Wikimedia. Uh, Benjamin, your uh, university has already reached out to work with us possibly and the civil society actors that we bring. And again, Algorithm Watch is in the neighborhood. So from our side, I think it's it's an easy kind of way forward to, to look for closer collaboration. Thanks for, for giving, giving us uh, your insights to the debate.